1: Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we're in Volume 3 of the book series The Words of the Buddha. This book is titled Foundations in the Teachings. Each week students around the world are reading chapters in this book and then we come together as a class in order to study those chapters. If you're joining us for the first time, it's okay if you haven't read the chapters because we're going to actually read them during the class today, and then I will teach each one of the chapters, and then we will open things up for any questions. The beauty about this type of program is that you're learning with the words of the Buddha, Rather than trying to guess what he taught or kind of picking it up little by little here and there, by taking a consistent, dedicated approach to learning with the words of the Buddha and the guidance of a teacher, you're able to understand exactly what he taught about this path to enlightenment so that you can then learn, reflect, and practice those teachings, incorporating them into your life and seeing that the condition of the mind and the condition of your life is consistently improving. The way that we do this program is we start out with a brief meditation just to kind of prepare the mind for the class, clearing out any kind of clutter that might be there in order to help you to retain what we learn and what we talk about in the class. Therefore, you can apply it in your life more readily when you're able to actually recall what's being taught. Then after we do our meditation, we'll go chapter by chapter. Now we're chapters 31 through chapters 40. And those are the 10 that we'll be discussing today. Students will be reading each one of those chapters. Then I will teach it and then we'll open up to any discussions or questions that you have. As you have questions, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. In the comment section, our moderators will see that and then get your question asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions as we go in our program today. So thank you all for joining. Very pleased that you've decided to learn and practice the teachings of the Buddha. Let's go ahead and start with our meditation and then we'll get going in our class and studying the words of the Buddha. Go ahead and take a position, either seated, standing, or lying. Those are kind of the three positions that are conducive to meditating while you're online. From here, make your lower body comfortable your hands and arms comfortable. Your upper body should be erect and then close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'll just give some brief guidance. People who join this program tend to be a little bit further along in their practice and have been meditating for a while. So no need to give a lot of guidance here. Just breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Focus the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. You would like to fixate your mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out. As you're focusing on the breath, if any thoughts or ideas, perceptions should arise, just cut those off, let them go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in, in, out.
2: Arahang samma samhotom mahakawa. Po tang mahakawa mi. Sava kha tov maha kha namasāmi Supa dhipa nov Sang ho sang nama me Nap more ha Nap more hasab hako ato, hare ato, a the people Ara are Sammasamuto, in PANUTERO PURISA NAMASATI SATA TAVA MANUSANA PUTO bhagavati. Arahang samasam hotom hakawa. Po tang makawa nang apiwa te mi. So, Nap more her sab hako ato Ara to some man NAPMORHASA BHAGAVATO we chadjaranang samuro sakato anu tero purisa dama okay
1: if you guys would like to slowly make your way out of meditation for anyone who's joined us while we were meditating i'd like to welcome you and once again, welcome all the people that have chosen to join for today's class. We go through each one of our chapters in this book, The Words of the Buddha, Foundations in the Teachings, Volume 3. And we've been in this book for four weeks now. This is our fourth week, and we're in chapters 31 through 40. So what we do is each chapter is read by a student or me and then I teach the chapter and then any questions that you have, you're welcome to ask questions. The purpose of these classes are to help you and guide you along in your journey in investigating the teachings of the Buddha. So this journey to enlightenment is an independent practice where it's an independent journey, but you're the one who is moving through this journey to enlightenment solely on your own truly however you're going to need guidance from a teacher and that's where it helps to be connected into some person that you can see guidance from where you can be guided in certain learning certain resources you can ask questions about things that are going on in your practice how to apply the teachings to your practice and everything that i share is based in the words of the buddha so here in this particular program on saturday tends to be students who have already taken our group learning program, which is on Sunday and Wednesday. In that class, we use this book, Volume 1, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. But in this program, there's Volumes 2 through Volumes 13. And all of these books are available for you at no cost. You can download them From our website buddhadailywisdom.com and then just click on the link for free books and you'll see those there you can download it you can download it and print it or you can order a printed copy through amazon if you'd like so welcome to anyone who's just joined us or anyone who's continuing to join us i appreciate your interest in learning and practicing the teachings of the buddha we do our meditation as a way to encourage and motivate each other and prepare the mind for this class. And then after that, now's the time for us to go ahead and start focusing on these chapters. So I'll go ahead and turn things over to our moderators, Bassam, Manal, and Nick, who are here to help us move through our class. And I'll be here to provide any guidance as you guys have questions along the way.
3: Hello, teacher. Hey, um, our first uh, volunteer for today is uh, Ali.
4: Craving desire is the root of discontentness. Whatever discontentness arose in the past, all that arose rooted in craving desire, with craving desire as its source, for craving desire is the root of discontentness. Whatever discontentness will arise in the future, all that will arise root in craving desire. With craving desire as its source, for craving desire is the root of discontentness. Whatever discontentness arises, all that is root in desire has desire as its source, for craving desire is the root of discontentness.
1: Okay, thank you, Ali. So this is kind of an expansion beyond the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught. The Four Noble Truths is what really establishes right view and helps us to see what is discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the path forward is the full path to eliminate discontentedness. But here in this little excerpt from a discourse of the Buddha, he just makes it utterly clear that any discontentedness in the past, any discontentedness in the future, and any discontentedness that is being experienced right now has all arisen from craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, grasping, holding, this longing, this yearning, this mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind is chasing after the objects of its affection. So here, this is a simple way of just saying all discontentedness is arising due to the mind's craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing with a strong eagerness. Any and all discontentedness is always coming from craving, desire, attachment, wants, expectations, grasping, holding, this mental longing with a strong eagerness. Any questions on this one?
3: Okay, it doesn't seem to have any questions for this chapter, Peter.
1: Okay, so we'll move on to the next one then. Chapter 32.
5: Yes, uh, the next is the journey. Great. All right, seven principles to prosper and not decline. Brahman, if the keep these seven principles, as long as these principles
2: remain in force, the may be predicted to prosper and not
5: decline. The following are the seven principles that the Tagata said to Venerable Ananda in the presence of Vasakara Brahman. Ananda, the Vajins hold regular and frequent assemblies. Ananda, the Vajans meet in harmony, break up in harmony and carry on their business in harmony. Ananda, the Vajins do not authorize what has not been authorized already and do not abolish what has been authorized but proceed according to what has been authorized by their ancient tradition. Ananda, divisions, honor, respect, revere, and salute the elders among them and consider them worth listening to. Ananda, divisions do not forcibly abduct others' wives and daughters and compel them to live with them. Ananda, divisions, honor, respect, revere, and salute the divisions, shrines at home and abroad not withdrawing the proper support made and given before. Ananda, the divisions make proper provision for the safety of our hunts so that such our hunts may come in the future to live there, and those already there may reside in comfort. Ananda, so long as they keep these principles, the divisions may be predicted to prosper and not decline.
1: All right, thank you, Johnny. So this group of people that the Buddha is referring to is a what we might consider like a country. And then there's various groups within this country. And they are known during the lifetime of the Buddha to live in harmony and to already be very successful and harmonious within their community. So the Buddha is kind of pointing out what is it about their society? What is it about their civilization? What is it about their community? what is it about their population that's leading to their harmony? and What is it that's leading to their prosperity and helping them to be a very vibrant community in which people live? And he's talking to Ananda, who is one of his closest students. It's reported that Ananda was like his cousin that was close to the Buddha. And he's also talking to this Brahmin. A Brahmin is kind of like what we might consider a Hindu priest who they were also interested in encouraging and motivating people to live a good life, but they weren't the same teachings as the Buddha. But oftentimes the Brahmin would come and learn with the Buddha, even though they were a different tradition and a different practices. A lot of things that the Buddha was teaching were learned by the Brahmin. So here the Buddha gives seven things that he says, these are the things that are going to be helpful. And creating and maintaining a vibrant community in which people can continue to prosper and grow. And he talks about having frequent meetings that when they come together and they break up and they spend time together, they do so in harmony. He talks about that they live according to the rules and the laws that they set up. That's number three. And he talks about them respecting, revering, saluting their elders. Because the older people in a community, they've lived life for longer than the younger generation. So they've gained a lot of wisdom. And by honoring, respecting, revering, and saluting elders, you can learn the wisdom of what they learned as they went forward in life. In societies where we disrespect our elders, the young generation tends to have a real difficult go at it, a real challenge in going forward in life because they're lacking the wisdom of the elders. It's like cutting the elders off at the kneecaps, and you don't get a chance to learn from these 60, 70, 80-year-old people who have obviously gone through in their life and have some wisdom to share to help younger generations. So the Buddha is saying this is really important to listen to the elders. And then, of course, not forcibly taking people's live partners. So I guess that was probably a certain practice that was going on in certain communities during the lifetime of the Buddha, where people were forcibly taking each other's wives and daughters. So that didn't happen in this community. They weren't doing that. They weren't stealing wives and daughters. So of course, that's going to lead to harmony and prosperity. Certain shrines, certain important sites that are important. So we might think of these as like monuments. In some countries, we have monuments that are erected in order to honor and salute and revere certain aspects of our history in certain countries. And the Buddha is saying this is a good practice to kind of honor the past in these monuments or these shrines. And then commonly, the Buddha will leave the last thing on his list. When he goes through lists, he will typically make a list. He usually will leave the last one to be the most important. And He leaves that as like okay this is the highest priority if you look at a lot of his list a lot of times he uses it as one to kind of encapsulate a lot of other things and kind of really highlight the importance by making it the last thing Uh, not always but that's oftentimes what he will do in this last one number seven he talks about making a place in your community for otter hunts which is enlightened beings Because if you can have enlightened beings that reside in your community and they feel comfortable and they feel like this is a place that they would like to reside, that's going to benefit all the other people in that civilization, in that population, because having enlightened beings in the presence of your community, those enlightened beings are going to be most likely, in some cases, sharing the teachings with others. And the teachings of the Buddha are going to be shared and propagated within this community. And you'll see people that will have wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. And through People interacting with each other that are more and more enlightened, these enlightened beings are going to be helping the community to practice in a way that becomes more and more enlightened. In other words, getting rid of these unwholesome qualities of mind. And this is going to truly help any community prosper. And having a community where enlightened beings feel like this is a place that would like to reside is only going to help all the other members of the community because the enlightened beings themselves they can reside anywhere they're completely peaceful and content joyful they can reside anywhere and continue to be peaceful content and joyful but if a certain community allows enlightened beings to reside there and creates provisions for them and safety for them and the enlightened beings reside there in comfort then once again this is going to really help the rest of the population to become more and more enlightened. So let's see what questions you guys have on this chapter.
3: No question, I teacher. Oh, seems that Rich has a question. Let's go to him.
6: Hi, uh, sometimes you talk about our hunts as an enlightened being. Um, but a stream-enterer would be the first stage of enlightenment. So is that also an enlightened
1: being? A being isn't enlightened until they're an arahant. So we refer to all four stages as stages of enlightenment, but it's only an arahant who's actually enlightened. In order to attain enlightenment, you need to eliminate all 10 fetters, and it's only an arahant who's eliminated all 10 fetters. A stream enter has only eliminated three fetters, so they're still experiencing discontentedness. They're still experiencing unwholesome results from their decisions because their mind isn't completely purified yet. It's only once the all ten fetters are eliminated that the mind's completely purified. There's no longer any discontentedness in the mind whatsoever. That person is an arahant. They're enlightened. The word arahant was kind of borrowed during the lifetime of the Buddha. He didn't actually come up with this name. It was a, a term that was used during his lifetime to refer to people who are you know, practicing and very wholesome, very noble. And he kind of used it as part of his teachings. But to answer your question directly, only an arahant is enlightened. The others are in the process of becoming enlightened. So that's why we call them stages of enlightenment.
6: Um, if a person is a stream enterer, are they, so they're past the jhanas, um, so they cannot regress out of being a stream enterer, or out of the f- stages of enlightenment?
1: Right. Once somebody attains stream entry, from that point forward, their mind won't regress backwards. They'll either attain enlightenment in that life that they're currently living or a maximum of seven more lives in the human realm, that they'll be reborn back into the human realm and then attain enlightenment. So they're in the stream, they're headed for the ocean. It's only a matter of time before they get there and they won't regress, they won't slide backwards from there.
6: Okay, thank you.
1: You're welcome. Well,
3: one more question for this chapter.
1: Okay. Let's go to chapter 33.
7: Yeah,
1: let's turn it to uh,
7: Nathan. Thank you, Bob. So, four things that lead to the continuation of wholesome teachings. There are, monks, these four things that lead to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. What for? Here, the monks learn discourses that had been well acquired, with well set down words and phrases. When the words and phrases are well set down, the meaning is well understood. This is the first thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. Number two, again, the monks are easy to correct and possess qualities
1: that make them easy to correct. They are patient and accept instruction
7: respectfully. This is the second thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. Number three, again, those monks who are learned, heirs to the heritage, experts on the teachings, experts on the discipline, experts on the outlines, respectfully teach the discourses to others. When they have passed away, the discourses are not cut off at the root for there are those who preserve them. This is the third thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. Number four, again, the elder monks are not luxurious and complacent, but they discard backsliding and take the lead in solitude. They arouse energy for the attainment of the as yet unattained, for the achievement of the as yet unachieved for the realization of the as-yet-unrealized. Those in the next generation follow their example. They too do not become luxurious and complacent, but they discard backsliding and take the lead in solitude. They too arouse energy for the attainment of the as-yet-unattained, for the achievement of the as-yet-unachieved, for the realization of the as-yet-unrealized. This is the fourth thing that leads to the continuation, non-decline, and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. These monks are the four things that lead to the continuation, non-decline,
1: and non-disappearance of the wholesome teachings. All right, thank you, Nick. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he was well aware of the universal truth of impermanence, of course, right? That's one of his most basic, most fundamental teachings that things are constantly changing. He was actually well aware that his teachings were going to slowly diminish over the course of 2,500 years. He gave an exact timeline of how that was going to occur. He gave five 500-year cycles that the declining of his teachings would occur. But during his lifetime, he gave this teaching of how to sustain his teachings and continue them for as long as possible, and he gave four things that lead to the continuation of his teachings. The first one is that his discourses, the things that he taught are continued to be taught with well set down words and phrases. This is essentially a really good word choices in terms of the people that are sharing his teachings, ensuring that they use proper wording, because he knew that language was going to change, that the language that he spoke in, that during his lifetime, His teachings would move into other languages besides the language that he spoke in, and the language that he actually spoke in would be gradually changing because of impermanence. So here he's encouraging people to ensure that when they are sharing his teachings, that they use proper wording and phrasing to really be penetrative, to be concise and be precise in terms of the way that we explain the teachings. And this is one of the reasons why very reliable translations of the Buddhist teachings are very important. And that wherever you're learning, that the individual who's sharing the teachings is able to be very precise and exact in their words and phrasings, because that's going to create a more penetrative wisdom to help you learn the teachings, and penetrate the mind, and then be able to reflect on those teachings and practice them in a way that leads to the results of enlightenment. The second thing that he talks about here is he talks about students being easy to correct and being respectful and patient in accepting the instruction from their teachers because Not only do teachers in this discipline share discourses the way that we do here online, but if you spend time with a teacher privately or in personal settings, they may actually need to share things with you that will help you on your journey. students need to feel comfortable to seek out a teacher and they decide who is their teacher. And this is the person that I'm choosing to learn with. And that teacher then should take it upon themselves to ensure that they're helping and guiding the students with certain resources and discourses and things like this. But also, if you've trusted a teacher to be your teacher, it's important that you stay open to all instruction. Of course, students, for the most part, are going to be asking questions and the teacher is going to be sharing the answer to those questions. But if you're living side by side with your teacher or you're going places together and a teacher sees something that they can help you with, if a student is open to that and they're able to accept corrections or guidance or able to understand that the teacher's only interest is to help you progress to enlightenment, then you can take non-solicited guidance as well. If a teacher, for example, goes somewhere with you and you invite them along, and they observe maybe your speech and they observe that maybe your tone or your tempo or your word choice or maybe you're a little bit harsh in your language, and you're open to hearing your teacher say, "Hey, by the way, uh, Nick, back there, you could have been a little bit more gentle with the waiter when we were paying our bill." And if Nick's like, "Oh, great, yeah, sure, thanks, I appreciate that. Yeah, I see that," or I'm not sure I see that. Can you explain it to me a little bit more? Like, where wasn't I gentle? And then kind of respectfully and patiently ask questions and ask for, for more input from their teacher. This is going to lead to you attaining enlightenment. Because if a student pushes away and rejects what a teacher is sharing with them, then they're never going to be able to get to enlightenment because in their mind, maybe they think they're perfect or the ego's there kind of blocking the instruction. So once a student has made the choice that, okay, this is my teacher, there's a certain relationship that gets established. There's a certain amount of trust that gets established. And if a student is open to any and all guidance from their teacher, they're going to actually get more benefit and progress on this path more seamlessly because they're respectfully and patiently accepting guidance from their teacher. The third one here is that the teachers need to make sure that they're respectfully providing the discourses and the teachings to the students. It's a two-way street. The students respectfully listen and learn and accept guidance, but then at the same time, the teachers need to be very respectful with their students and ensure that they're taking the effort and energy to practice the teachings so that their students can then observe as a role model that the teacher is practicing the teachings very well, and that they lay out the teachings very clearly, and that the students are then able to learn and absorb those teachings. So, the respect needs to be from the teacher to the student as well, and this creates a very healthy relationship where both the student and the teacher are engaged in practicing the teachings, and they're being respectful to each other, being very polite with each other, because In actuality, letting go of craving, desire, attachment, it's very tough. It's very challenging. There's a lot of struggles involved. And no matter how much you may respect your teacher, sometimes if you hear things that the mind doesn't like, there may be a negative reaction there. And if that occurs, you just have to observe it. You have to make amends and you have to maybe apologize to your teacher if you said things that were maybe not appropriate then you can keep that relationship going forward and ensure that you're continuing in your instruction and if there's any teachers who aren't yet enlightened and they're actually trying to teach they actually might at times be impolite or unkind or unfriendly or disrespectful to their students too and if you do that as a teacher it means that you're not enlightened, but it also means that you're going to need to apologize to your students as well and make sure they know that, hey, you know you're not enlightened yet and you're still in the process of, of doing that. Now, my guidance is that someone shouldn't be teaching unless they are enlightened because that's going to ensure that the wisdom is 100% there to share the teachings in a way that's going to lead people to enlightenment and ensure that there's no misunderstandings, that what the Buddha calls final knowledge exists. In order to attain enlightenment, a person would have to have what they call final knowledge. And that's really, really important that teachers develop that final knowledge because otherwise they really could be misleading their students. The other possibility is that a person who might choose to teach prior to enlightenment ensures that they only teach what they know to be true 100% from their experiences. That if any question is ever asked or anything is ever discussed that they don't know, that they just be very utterly honest and open and say, I don't know the answer to that, but let me ask my teacher and I'll get the answer and help you. And that way, the person who's sharing the teachings, who's not yet enlightened, can ensure they're only ever sharing the truth Because if somebody doesn't share the truth, it's going to be misleading and make it very difficult. And these teachings are going to decline where they aren't going to be sustained and continue in the world as long. So the Buddha is talking here about being experts in the teachings and experts in the discipline, experts in the outlines and structure of his teachings, and then respectfully sharing those teachings with the students. That's number three. And then number four is that elder students or senior students, that they're not luxurious, they're not complacent. If somebody is complacent, then they're not yet enlightened. And if they accept backsliding in their practice, then they're not yet enlightened. And enlightened being, there's no such thing as complacency in an enlightened being's mind. There's no such thing as backsliding for an enlightened being. Their practice is permanent. They are always practicing right view right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, all of those teachings and others are always being practiced by an enlightened being because the enlightened mind is unconditioned. All pollution is eliminated from the mind, so they're able to practice all the teachings all the time with ease, it's effortless. And if senior students are practicing in this way, and they're working towards either their enlightenment to achieve the as yet unachieved or the attain the as yet unattained or to realize the as yet unrealized those are individuals who are not yet enlightened and moving towards enlightenment but they don't allow any kind of backsliding and if they observe backsliding in their own practice then they move forward and they don't allow complacency to set in So essentially, the senior students should be setting a role model, an example of not allowing complacency or backsliding, being dedicated to solitude and going off on your own to be alone and training the mind to be comfortable and content alone. And when this happens, then the newer students coming in and being part of a community will use those senior students as a role model and an example for how to practice these teachings. Whereas if the senior students are complacent, and they're okay with backsliding, and they're not really practicing to attain the as yet unattained, then they're not really dedicated and diligent to their practice, and the newer generation of students aren't going to be diligent in their practice either. So the Buddha is saying, okay, all you senior students, make sure you maintain your practice, And don't allow backsliding and don't become complacent. And this is going to promote continuous growth as new students come in and they're going to use you as a role model. So these are the four things that the Buddha shared as a way to maintain the continuation of his wholesome teachings for as long of a period as possible. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
6: Well, uh, Rich has a question,
3: so this put in.
6: Yes, hi, Uh, you've talked about the Buddha saying that around this time there would be another Buddha and you've also said that a Buddha is one who is able to attain enlightenment. Without the teachings. Um, and, and since the teachings are there. That almost seems unlikely that they could do it without the teachings for my cynical mind, I guess. Um, And and also, if someone was to come along and say, I'm the new Buddha and uh, you know, these teachings are, are a little bit misguided and I have the right answers. Also, my cynical mind would be like, okay. Really, how do we know that you know what you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so let me clarify some things for you. I haven't said that a Buddha doesn't need the teachings because a Buddha is going to discover the teachings. They're the ones who are going to share the teachings. So yes, Gautama Buddha did share that there's going to be a new Buddha 2,500 years after his death. I think there's actually the chapter in this block that we're studying this week, that where he actually talks about that briefly, or mentions that briefly. And that new Buddha is going to then share the teachings in a way that restores them back to shining in the world, where the entire world can then attain enlightenment through those teachings. But it's important to understand that a Buddha doesn't need to go around and convince people that he's a Buddha. And he's not going to ask people believe me that I'm a Buddha. Instead, a Buddha has such deep, profound wisdom, they can actually just start sharing their teachings without anybody knowing that they are a Buddha. And it actually helps that people don't know that he's a Buddha. Because if someone went around claiming that they're enlightened or claiming that they are a Buddha, Right away, you can discount that, and you can know that this person still has ego and arrogance, so therefore they're not enlightened, and they're not a Buddha. But a Buddha's wisdom will be so deep and so profound, they won't need to tell people they're enlightened, and they won't need to tell people they're a Buddha. They can just start teaching and when they start teaching they are able to share the teachings in the world in a way that is helpful and beneficial for their students and as the students learn and practice and evolve and train their mind and their mind becomes more and more enlightened they may actually figure out that their teacher is a buddha but that's not required a buddha doesn't need people to bow down to him or respect him or you know convince people that he is a buddha a buddha is not interested in fame, fortune, notoriety, or any of these things like, okay, you know, going around and claiming that they are a Buddha. What a Buddha is interested in is sharing their teachings into the world in a way that's going to help countless individuals during their lifetime. And then their teachings are going to sustain in the world after their death so that countless more people can attain enlightenment after their death. A Buddha doesn't need the notoriety or the fame or the acclaim that they are an actual Buddha. That's not a prerequisite of them being able to share their teachings in the world. Instead, they can just start teaching. And then throughout the course of their life, more and more and more people are going to attain enlightenment. And then by the time that person dies, it will be very clear that they are a Buddha based on all the people that have attained enlightenment during their lifetime. In that they're going to leave the teachings in a condition after their death that more and more and more people can attain enlightenment afterwards. So, Gautama Buddha, he didn't go around telling everyone that he's a Buddha. He talked about being a perfectly enlightened one in the Tathagata, but that term Buddha that we refer to today as a Buddha and we kind of hold it up really high, that didn't really get applied to Gautama Buddha until after his death because that's when all three conditions and criteria of what a Buddha is were actually fulfilled is after his death. And while today we might look at being a Buddha as something that is really high and somebody has ego or arrogance to claim that they're a Buddha and so forth, but anyone who's an actual Buddha shouldn't need to go around claiming that they're a Buddha. They can just start teaching and doing their work because a Buddha is all about sharing the teachings into the world in a way that helps people now and helps people into the future. So they're just going to start doing their work and start helping people. They're not going to look for admiration from people and trying to convince people to believe that they're an actual Buddha.
6: Okay, well, what if someone came along and said that... um the teachings as they've come down are, this part is false. This part is false. And, and this is the real way that Buddha, Gautama Buddha meant to say it wouldn't, shouldn't a red flag kind of go up in your mind and be like, okay, you're misguiding me.
1: If you're developing your practice properly, then you shouldn't believe anything that a teacher says. Instead, you learn what they're sharing, you reflect on it, and then you practice it and see the truth for yourself. So if a teacher says, okay, here's what is the actual teachings, and I'm sharing that with you, and these are the the teachings, you should be able to go off and independently confirm whether they're true or false. And then through your practice, you develop the wisdom to see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind is gradually improving. If you develop your practice properly, you can never, ever be misled because you shouldn't be believing anything that a teacher is saying, but listening and learning about what they're sharing. And then if you can independently confirm that what they're sharing is the truth, then you know that that's the truth. So someone might share like, okay, For example, one of the things that I share is this word suffering that is used amongst Buddhist communities. I say that this isn't the best word for us to be using to represent what the Buddha used when he used the word dukkha. And I say that a better word is discontentedness. And then I say here's the reasons why. Because Gautama Buddha shared pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And those Pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, and elation. And if we use the word suffering to describe dukkha, when you're happy, would you say you're suffering? When you're excited, would you say you're suffering? And likewise, shyness is part of dukkha. When you're shy, would you say you're suffering? So, a teacher who's saying, okay, these words that are being used in the past, like suffering, for example, aren't the best words to use instead we should be using discontentedness they should be able to lay out for you the reasons why and then you should be able to investigate that on your own reflecting on that and practicing it and see the truth for yourself so and anybody who's saying and trying to redirect from words that have been used in the past should be doing it in a very polite way they shouldn't be talking in derogatory ways about the people in the past who've been using words and teachings in a certain way. If someone's going to introduce something in a way that is going to be more beneficial and their enlightened and their are practicing well, they shouldn't need to degrade others in order to share the true teachings. If someone's sharing the true teachings, not only should they be independently verifiable, But you should see through that person's practice that they are being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful, sharing their teachings into the world, even though they differ from other people's teachings. They don't need to denigrate or degrade other teachers in order to share the real truth.
6: Okay, and um, you just said um, that happiness would be under the... um, Categorized in dukkha, and I'm having a hard time seeing the difference between joy and happiness.
1: Okay, the difference is is that the way that I describe happiness is based on the Buddha's description of a conditioned feeling. A conditioned feeling is one that is based on impermanent conditions. So you're happy that you got a new car, you're happy you got a new job, you're happy you got a new pair of shoes. That happiness is a pleasant feeling. It's discontentedness. It's based on some condition that exists, but that condition is impermanent. So you're happy because you got a new pair of shoes. But then when those shoes get old and you can't afford to buy another pair of shoes, now you're sad. That's what the unenlightened mind does. What unconditioned joy is that is permanent in the enlightened mind is that it doesn't arise it doesn't change and it doesn't fade away because the joy in an enlightened mind isn't based on any conditions. So a enlightened mind is going to be joyful all the time. They don't base their joy on, I got a new pair of shoes. There's a new pair of shoes. Okay, I'll wear the new pair of shoes because I needed a new pair of shoes. Oh, these shoes are old. I can't buy another pair. Okay, well, I'll figure out something else. So an enlightened mind isn't going to have conditioned feelings, feelings that are based on some impermanent condition. Instead, they're gonna have mental qualities that are unconditioned. What a conditioned feeling is, is it arises, it changes, and then it fades away, because it's based on some impermanent condition. An unconditioned mental state, it doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. It's just always there. And that's what an enlightened mind experiences, is there's multiple mental qualities that are just always in the mind all the time. That makes sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Adding to that, Rich, is what you're doing in training the mind is you're removing all the conditions that are keeping the mind in the unenlightened state. So there's all this pollution, all these conditions that are trapping the mind in the unenlightened state an enlightened being has purified the mind. They've removed all the conditions. So now it's an unconditioned mind. And now that's why enlightenment is permanent. It never fades away. That's why you don't backslide once you've gotten to that first stage of enlightenment, because you've cleaned up the mind enough, removed enough conditions that the mind doesn't backslide out of that. By the time you get to arahant or enlightened, All conditions are removed from the mind, everything's been purified, and now there's no conditions that are creating discontentedness. The mind is unconditioned. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions on this chapter?
3: Yes, teacher. It seems that Manel has some questions. Let's turn it to her. Sure.
1: Teacher David, um, would
8: you um, help? Uh, identify if there is any um, standout phrases in your teaching um, based off of Kottama with those words, which should be well understood and set down as described in this chapter.
1: Yeah, so like there's certain words that I share throughout the teachings that I share that I feel aren't well set down words and phrases. And that's why like the word suffering that is used throughout the Buddhist community, I make that very clear early on in the teaching that I share that I don't feel that that's the best word in order to represent what the Buddha taught. And I introduce this word discontent, discontented or discontentedness, and then I share the reasons why. And there's other words like that throughout the teachings that I kind of share and I help people see the real clarity in the words. So, for example, this one fetter or this one poison that people refer to as ignorance. This particular word that we're using, that we're translating from the Pali canon, and we use ignorance, we use delusion, we use confusion. I've said from the very beginning that this word ignorance isn't the right word to be using because it's a derogatory term today. And a Buddha doesn't refer to other people in a derogatory way. So that's why I redefine this as the unknowing of true reality, essentially the lack of wisdom rather than referring to it as ignorance. But I've kind of left that word in there because if students are trying to connect what I share to other teachers, other teachers are going to be using ignorance, delusion or confusion. But I make it very clear to people that what this really is, is the unknowing of true reality. And there's other words like this throughout the teachings that I feel that aren't exactly the best words, and I will introduce words that I feel are best. And whenever I do that, if it's a big enough adjustment like discontentedness replacing suffering, then I will explain very clearly why I'm doing that so that students can see the clarity, because the more clear that we use these words, words and the more clarity that we bring to the teachings the better there's places in some translations that we see that translators are saying that the buddha refers to someone as a fool you know this person is foolish how dare he do this that or the other thing a buddha doesn't talk that way an enlightened being doesn't talk that way but the challenge that we have is we have translations, multiple translations from different translators, and they're all doing the very best that they can do. But if the mind is unenlightened and someone is translating the words of a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, it would be challenging enough for an unenlightened being to translate the words of an enlightened being. That would be a challenge enough for an unenlightened translator. But for an unenlightened translator to translate the words of a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha, This is very, very challenging for people because a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha, they think very differently than other people and they speak very differently than other people. Of course, polite, kind, friendly, and respectful. But if you're reading translations that you feel are from the Buddha and you see that the Buddha referred to someone as a fool or stupid, and you think this is the way a Buddha thinks and the way that a Buddha talks, then you're going to be likely to speak in that same way too. But in reality, what you're seeing is you're seeing an unenlightened translator translating the words of a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. So it's really important that the more you understand what enlightenment is, that you realize all the teachings that we have out in the world, in my view, they don't 100% reflect what a Buddha would teach. Because If you're seeing derogatory terms where people are representing the Buddha as talking down to people in degrading ways, an enlightened being doesn't do that. And surely a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha doesn't do that. So I've made a real concerted effort throughout the books that I write to introduce really good set down words and phrases. And in the translations that I'm offering in this whole book series, I've made a real concerted effort to ensure that I'm representing the words that I feel an enlightened being in a Buddha would actually be using. So instead of using a word like you fool, you know, I will say, you know, this person is unwise, right? That's what a Buddha is going to say, because a Buddha, rather than saying that someone's a fool or stupid, a Buddha might say, oh, this is an unwise statement, or this is an unwise teaching. You know, a Buddha is not going to say that, oh, that's a stupid teaching or that teacher is such a fool for sharing those teachings with you. You know, that's an unenlightened mind that's going to say those things. Instead, an enlightened being and a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha will need to say, you know, I feel my opinion is that's an unwise teaching, but here's what I feel would be a wise teaching. So you're always going to see this politeness, this kindness, this friendliness, this respectfulness from an enlightened being, and from a fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. And they'll be able to communicate this way with ease. It won't be very difficult. They won't be stumbling over their words. They won't have to think constantly about what am I supposed to say here? They've already done that work. That's the work that you do moving from unenlightened mind to enlightenment is you're gradually training the mind to stop thinking and to stop reacting in the way of hostility and as you shed off all of that harshness and you move into the enlightened mental state an enlightened being and a perfectly enlightened buddha is going to be able to communicate at ease with politeness kindness friendliness and respectfulness and their teachings are going to have this real precise way of sharing the wisdom and penetrating into the minds of the students so they can see very clearly what is the path to enlightenment an enlightened being and a perfectly enlightened buddha should be illuminating the path very clearly like a path that has like you know lanterns all the way along the path showing you exactly what it is to get to enlightenment because an enlightened being and a perfectly enlightened buddha are going to have deep wisdom to be able to make sure they illuminate this path very, very clearly for people. So there's lots of those, Manal, throughout the teachings, and I've made an effort to ensure that everything that I'm sharing is shared in a way that does have well-set-down words and phrases.
8: Yes, I understand um, what, you're, what you're meaning there. Um, I think as a practitioner, I um, one of the things that has benefited me was if there was a phrase or or a specific word even which you brought up, which um, I had did not have clarity in terms of um, how to understand it as a wholesome teaching, oftentimes I've actually asked you, what is your definition of this word? Um, because that definition sheds light and sheds clarity on oftentimes in a modern-day interpretation of words um you know people interpret it in different ways or in short shortened version ways so i think one of the things which has benefited me is just to um, not be afraid to say you know what what is the definition of this what do you mean by that um one of the one other example that comes to mind is just the word ego and modern day interpretation Mm -hmm. um and some of the the teaching which i've extracted from from your explanation of this teaching, um, it, it goes beyond just the word ego. There's personal existence view, there's conceit. Uh, it's broken down in different parts, whereas the modern day interpretation of the word ego may be just very shortened.
1: Yeah, this is a good point, Manal, that part of this path to enlightenment is, of course, recognizing impermanence and knowing impermanence, but also understanding because of impermanence, the language that we all use, even we say it's English, all of us think about certain words with different definitions. Sure, there's dictionaries, but all these dictionaries have different meanings. From one dictionary to another, you'll see different meanings to words. So because of impermanence, even one dictionary explains a word differently than another dictionary. So one of the things that I do in the teachings that I share is I will oftentimes define a word that I'm using so that you know how I'm using that word and that you don't just assume that your definition of what a word means is the same definition that I'm using. So I make a real concerted effort to clarify words that I'm using with an exact definition. And if at any point you're not clear, you can always ask like Manal's talking about, and ensure that you understand what the word is that's being used and how I'm defining it. Because part of this path to enlightenment is to get clarity, clarity of mind, get that crispness, that sharpness of mind. And the only way that we can get to that is if you understand language and you really look at the definition of certain words and understand how you're using words and how other people are using words. And then when you get really good at this on the path to enlightenment in terms of understanding definitions of words when you're in your private and your professional communications and you're having personal relationships and professional relationships there might be times where you are misunderstanding somebody else and you might have to just ask them how are you defining that word because you understand impermanence and you might actually be having a miscommunication everybody's speaking english But we're using words a lot of times in different ways so with that wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence and you're looking for clear communication and clarity you might actually have to ask people to describe how they define certain words and then when you lay that down very clearly then you can get to clarity and good healthy relationships because you're using the words in the similar way So anybody who's studying with me, if you've gone through the resources that I share, you'll see a lot of times when I'm introducing something, even like meditation in Chapter 11 of Volume 1, I don't assume that the way that I think of meditation is the same way that everyone else thinks of meditation. So I define that word, even meditation, in a very clear way so people know how I'm using the word meditation. So that if it differs from the way that they use it or somebody else uses it, then you can get to clarity in this teachings of the Buddha of exactly what is this path. And this is very important lesson, not only for your path to enlightenment, but for your personal and professional relationships. That if you're talking with your life partner or your children or anybody in your life, you might actually have to pause the conversation sometimes and just check in with people about how they're defining certain words so that you guys can kind of come to a common understanding and communicate very clearly with each other, then you'll have the best chance of meeting to some consensus and being able to reside in harmony and peacefulness together.
8: It's, uh, just going right back to chapter 33 the five masks about the word solitude being used here. Uh, this is actually the first time I'm seeing um, this being advised. Or perhaps recommended for, in my understanding is for practitioners as well, as well as a teacher. Um, am I mistaken that this is um, this is for both practitioner and for teacher, or it's just for teacher? Recommendation of solitude.
1: Both a teacher and a student are practitioners of the path, and all practitioners should look to practice solitude because. If you're on this path to enlightenment and you're trying to build this mindfulness and this concentration and clarify the mind, get rid of unwholesomeness and arise wholesomeness, then if you're always with other people, you can't really build mindfulness in the same way and you can't build concentration. You can't sit with your own thoughts when you've got people around you constantly. So solitude is really important where you go shopping by yourself, you go to the mall by yourself, go out to dinner, take yourself out to dinner by yourself, go on holidays and vacation alone, go on hikes in the forest alone. You know, not real dangerous ones, but you know, go go out and do stuff like that that will allow you to sit with your own thoughts and process what's going on and it will help you gain a lot of independence and a lot of clarity that you feel confident in content and peaceful being alone. And then some people, maybe they're around people all the time and they lack solitude. Other people might be craving or clinging to solitude and they need to start being around other people a little bit more. So you've got to kind of look at both of those and find that middle where you're spending time with others because you need to have relationships in the world, but you also need to spend time alone at certain times as well. And this is really healthy for the mind to spend time alone, which isn't something that people are oftentimes very comfortable with, because when you're alone, you're with your own thoughts. And that can be a very scary thing for a lot of people. But that's what you've got to get used to in order to clear those unwholesome thoughts out of there is you've got to be able to be alone and see those thoughts and feel content going off and doing things alone sometimes.
8: Was this advice given
1: to help backsliding? Solitude is important at all times. The Buddha talks about it at different times. Being in solitude, it doesn't necessarily promote or remedy backsliding because backsliding is typically based on complacency. But yes, if you are taking time to go into solitude, and solitude can be for a few hours or a few days, you know, things like this. It doesn't have to be, you know, like what the Buddha did is, you know, he went out in the forest for for many days and, and weeks and years. And that was how he practiced solitude. And even Jesus Christ went off into the desert for 40 days by himself. Prophet Muhammad did the same thing. He went off by himself. All of these people who are really into tapping into these natural laws of existence, are going to practice solitude. And that's really helpful. There's actually times even once the Buddha started teaching, where he would leave for three months. He would just leave his students and go off into the forest by himself and wouldn't come back for three months. And this can be really helpful for you. And sure, it can potentially help with backsliding because you're not being complacent. You're attending to your own mind and making sure that you're addressing that, that you're not just filling your day with lots of stimulation because you're just afraid to be bored or afraid to be lonely. So you've got to experience solitude to see, is the mind bored? Is it lonely? What is it craving? What is it attached to? And this can be really helpful for you. Thank you,
8: teacher.
1: Yes, you're welcome. Any other questions on this chapter? No more questions, teacher. Okay. Well, this next chapter, I'm sure that Bossum has somebody lined up to read it. It's exactly the same thing as the previous chapter, except it's talking about the opposites. So I think we can skip over this chapter in terms of the reading part and see if there's any questions on it. This chapter is saying, you know, what are the four things that lead to the decline and disappearance of the wholesome teachings, which are essentially just the opposite of the ones that we just studied. Do you guys have any questions on this chapter?
3: No questions for the one, teacher.
1: Okay, so let's move on from here, because it's essentially the same thing, and I've explained that in there. So chapter 35, I think that's me. Yes, Possum.
3: Is exactly
1: the choice. Okay. So this is a pretty long chapter, but it really just deals with impermanence. So I'm going to read part of it, but then I'm just going to skip over it because we don't necessarily have to read the whole chapter to get to the actual heart of the teaching of what the Buddha was sharing. This chapter 35 is titled conditioned objects are impermanent. This is important to understand because one of the myths in the world is that the Buddha said everything is impermanent which he never said everything is impermanent he always talked about conditioned objects are impermanent and what we were talking about with rich before is what a condition is a conditioned object you're going to see an arising you're going to see a changing and you're going to see a fading away or a ceasing to exist an unconditioned is going to not arise not change and not fade away it's permanent so The human body is a conditioned object. It goes from not existing to arising, to changing, to fading away. This book, it's a conditioned object. It's not permanent. At one time it didn't exist. It arose, it changes as it gets used more and more, and then at some point it will fade away. It's not a permanent book. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here when he talks about conditioned objects things that arise, change, and then fade away. Monks, conditioned objects are impermanent. Conditioned objects are unstable. Conditioned objects are unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Monks, I don't know how to pronounce this, Saniru, the king of the mountains, is 84,000 yanjanas. I don't know how to pronounce that either, in length. And this length is about 12 to 15 kilometers long. So the Buddha is saying that this mountain has 84,000 times 12 kilometers. That's how long this mountain is and it has 84,000 Yonjanas wide, right? It is submerged 84,000 yojanas in the great ocean and rises up 84,000 yojanas above the great ocean. So this is just an enormous mountain, okay? There comes a time, monks, when rain does not fall for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years, For many hundreds of thousands of years when rain does not fall seed life and vegetation medicinal plants grasses and great trees of the forest wither and dry up and no longer exist so impermanent are conditioned objects so unstable so unreliable it is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects enough to become free from strong feelings towards them enough to be liberated from them okay so let's just talk about this one shortly because the rest are just kind of replications of this what he's talking about here is the changes in the environment and the constant changes in the environment these conditioned objects and he's saying that these conditioned objects they're impermanent they're unstable they're unreliable they're constantly changing and therefore the unenlightened mind is going to become dissatisfied because the unenlightened mind wants to hold on. It wants to cling. It wants permanence. So therefore by clinging and wanting permanence, but yet all these things are changing, all these conditioned objects are changing, the mind becomes dissatisfied with them. And then he says, okay, it's enough to become free from strong feelings. So not having these strong feelings of these longing and this yearning for these conditioned objects enough to be liberated from them so freedom from them so for example if you have a purse or a pair of shoes that you really like and you really are holding on to them tightly that's a conditioned object it's impermanent if the mind holds on to it as those shoes or as that purse gets old and it starts breaking down the mind's going to become dissatisfied and disinterested in it because it's holding on to it so tightly But if you realize that that's part of the life cycle of that purse or those shoes, then you can become free from those strong feelings of irritation or annoyance or anger that arises from the changing of this object. But where you get to that is you get to that from the first part that when you first are buying the new purse or you're buying the new shoes, don't allow the mind to experience that conditioned happiness. Don't allow the mind to have this excitement and elation arise just because you're getting some new product. Because if you do, eventually the mind's going to experience painful feelings because you allowed it to experience those conditioned, pleasant feelings. You're not ever going to get to this unconditioned joy if you allow the mind to keep experiencing this conditioned, pleasant feelings. These subsequent paragraphs The Buddha is just talking about other environmental changes. He's talking about a second sun appearing. He's talking about a third sun appearing, a fourth sun appearing, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh. He talks about all these changes in the environment as he's going through. And he talks about all these different aspects of the climate, essentially. He's describing climate change is what he's describing. And... He gets all the way down here to beyond the seventh paragraph where he talks about, okay, when this great earth, this huge mountain are blazing and burning, neither ashes nor soot are seen, just as when ghee or oil are blazing and burning, neither ashes nor soot are seen. So it is when this great earth, this king of the mountains, are blazing and burning. So impermanent are conditioned objects, so unstable, so unreliable. It is enough to become dissatisfied with all conditioned objects, enough to become free from strong feelings towards them, enough to be liberated from them. Now here's the part where he really sums it up. Monks who except for those who have seen the truth would think and or understand this great earth will burn up, be destroyed and will no longer exist. So what he's essentially saying here is he's saying at some point, this earth is going to no longer exist. This planet is no longer going to exist, but who would ever understand that? Except those who have seen the truth and deeply understand the universal truth of impermanence. If you look around you and you can't find anything that's permanent, then you have the wisdom. You know the truth that the universal truth of impermanence is indeed the truth. And you have that wisdom. And if somebody said to you, yeah, someday that mountain won't be there anymore. You're like, yeah, of course, because of impermanence. Or, oh, someday this book isn't going to exist anymore. Oh, yeah, because of impermanence or any other thing like this. Then those who have seen the truth would think and understand that at some point this earth is going to burn up, be destroyed and no longer exist. And that isn't like, oh, my goodness, how could you say that? That's so horrible. How could you ever say that? A person who sees the truth and has the wisdom, it's like, yeah, of course, that's gonna happen. It's not a big deal, it's just part of the universal truths that we understand, these natural laws of existence. So he's saying all of that to get to that last point. So what questions do you guys have about this chapter? No question for this chapter. Okay, so let's move on to chapter thirty-six.
5: Yes, the opportunity is joining. In Unrighteous. Monks, when kings are unrighteous, the royal subordinates or vassals become unrighteous. When the royal subordinates or vassals are unrighteous, Brahmins and householders become unrighteous. When Brahmins and householders are unrighteous, the people of the towns and countryside become unrighteous. And when people of the towns and countryside are unrighteous, the sun and moon proceed off course. When the sun and moon proceed off course, the constellations and the stars proceed off course. When the constellations and stars proceed off course, day and night proceed off course. When day and night proceed off course, the months and weeks proceed off course. When the months and weeks proceed off course, the seasons and years proceed off course. When the seasons and years proceed off course, the wind blows off course and at random. And when the wind blows off course and at random, the deities become upset. When the deities are upset, sufficient rain does not fall. When sufficient rain does not fall, the crops ripen irregularly. When people eat crops that ripen irregularly, they become short-lived, ugly, weak, and sickly. Then the topic explained in the above in detail with the opposite causes, with the opposite results. Punx. when kings are righteous, the royals, subordinates, the or vassals become righteous. When sufficient rain falls, the crops ripen in season. When people eat crops that ripen in season, they become long-lived, beautiful, strong, and healthy.
1: Okay, thanks, Johnny. So here, this is the Buddha's way of teaching. He has this cause and effect where he's always showing the causes and conditions, this cause and effect, this action and results. And here the Buddha is showing how one decision by a king, essentially the leader of a community, you might think of this person as a president or a prime minister in a country, making one unrighteous decision or multiple unrighteous decisions potentially leads to all these other subsequent effects. And this shows the cause and effect relationship that when the leader of a community or a population is unwholesome, immoral, impolite, unfriendly, uncalm, unkind, disrespectful, when you see a leader in a community that is like this, then it's going to have a domino effect. It's going to cascade across the population because all the people around them, here the royal subordinates or the vassals, are going to become unrighteous and when they're unrighteous the brahmin and the householders these are the priests and the household practitioners are going to become unrighteous and it just cascades from there all the way where the buddha talks about how it even affects the weather and things like this so here this is just kind of a a case-by-case leading one thing to the next and the buddha used to teach all people of all society all parts of society all classes of society he taught people who might be considered to be low class or middle class or upper class, even kings. So he taught members of the royal family to be righteous and to make good wholesome decisions and treat your population of people very well and that by treating them well it's going to result into good things. So let's see what questions you guys have on this. And
3: let's see if any question for this teacher
1: okay one thing that i taught as part of the explanation of this chapter is i talked about how you can relate this not only to large populations of people like a president or a prime minister but you can think about this in terms of your own life too if you are a person who has children and you are kind of one of the leaders in the household as a parent for example when you do things unrighteous your children are going to be unrighteous as well So essentially what the Buddha is talking about here is the leader of any group, whether it's a population like a country or a state or a county, community leaders, or even you're just a leader in your own household, your example is being followed by the people around you, whether it's a household, or even if you're a boss or a manager or something like that in a company or some other institution, you've always got to be thinking that your decisions in terms of your wisdom moral conduct and mental discipline is being observed by the people around you. And they're going to function in a similar way as you. That's the cause and effect relationship, the action and results. So it would be really wise for you to work on your own practice, and by you developing and improving your life practice, this is where you'll see this cascading effect of the people around you will also work to improve their practice as well, typically, or they'll just move on into other relationships. So you'll see that as I talk about it in the description of this chapter. All right, so we go to chapter 37. This one I think is me, right, Bassem? Yes, teacher. Okay, so I'm going to skip through some of this one as well, because it's a pretty long one. And I just get to the heart of the actual teaching that the Buddha shared. The title here of chapter 37 is Causes of a Decrease in People's Lifespan. So here he starts it off. The king established guard and protection, but he did not give property to the needy. And as a result, poverty became widespread. So we're getting ready to see this whole cause and effect, just like in the previous chapter, there's this whole cause and effect where a king provided guard and protection with his soldiers, but he didn't give property or prosperity or wealth to poverty-stricken people in his kingdom. Therefore, there's all of this subsequent results of things that are going to occur in the kingdom because these poverty-stricken people are now unwell. And there's all these things that happen. So because the king didn't take care of the population of people and allowed poverty to ensue, these are the things that Buddha talks about that occurs. Thus, from not giving of property to the needy, poverty became widespread. From the growth of poverty, the taking of what was not given increased. From the increase of theft, the use of weapons increased. From the increase of weapons, the taking of life increased. And from the increase of taking of life, people's lifespan decreased, their beauty decreased. And as a result of this decrease of lifespan and beauty, the children of those whose lifespan had been 80,000 years lived for only 40,000 years. Okay, So the Buddha goes through multiple things here and he really connects this to the five precepts but by not practicing the five precepts there's all of this cascading effects that occur people taking life people speaking evil to each other sexual misconduct essentially what he's describing is what we see in the world today is that we see this you know massive amount of killing and sexual misconduct and evilness in some parts of the world but he goes in and he talks very detailed and this constant decrease of lifespan. He talks about craving and anger. He talks about all these different aspects that are just constantly working towards the decreasing of the lifespan. And then ultimately, he gets down here where he says, okay, what's going to happen at the end of all of this is that there's going to be this Buddha, this otter this fully enlightened Buddha named Maitreya. And Maitreya essentially means loving kindness. Maitreya, this word relates to the word metta, which is loving kindness. And this new Buddha is going to arise during this time where the world is pretty much in shambles and then share the teachings into the world in such a way that it improves the whole condition of the actual world. Now, one thing that I'll share here is that the Buddha is talking about the lifespan of people, of individual people here. But from what I know about this particular chapter and the way that I read this chapter is it's not actually about the individual's lifespan. Because he actually talks about the individual lifespan going down to like, I think, 10 or even 5 years at one point. It goes down to 10 years. The way that I understand this chapter is he's talking about the lifespan going down to 10 years. And then when this fully awakened, perfectly enlightened Buddha arises and shares the teachings into the world to help everyone stop doing all this unwholesome conduct, then the lifespan expands back to 80 years. He's not actually talking about individual's lifespan. He's talking about the lifespan of humanity. So right now, we are essentially on the brink of humanity essentially collapsing, depending on the decisions that we make as a humanity over the next 10 years is going to depend whether humanity continues beyond this time or not. And then when this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha arises with the population of people and all of humanity practicing these teachings, then what happens is if people practice in the way that is prescribed in these teachings, then the lifespan of all of humanity expands out where now all of humanity will last another 80,000 years. And that's what the Buddha is actually talking about here, even though it's worded in such a way that it makes it sound like it's an individual person who will live for 80,000 years. That's not what he's talking about because that's impossible. A human being doesn't live that long. What he's talking about is the lifespan of humanity. And this is one of the places where he talks about the arising of Maitreya Buddha, this fully, perfectly enlightened Buddha. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: Well, from all the unwholesome misconduct mentioned in this chapter, since that it's all about it, acquiring wisdom right so anyone who is practicing and learning to acquire wisdom will choose will decide to choose wholesome decisions that will lead his life and all of those around him and maybe to some part to some extent all of humanity to wholesome reasons,
1: right exactly basim you're 100 correct through learning the teachings through seeing the truth in the teachings, acquiring wisdom, then people individually will make their own wise decisions to no longer practice these unwholesome aspects of moral conduct, and instead will practice in a wholesome way, which will improve the condition of all of humanity's minds, which will improve the condition of our planet. Therefore, the lifespan of our planet Will be increased up to eighty thousand years.
3: Well, thanks, teacher. The next lecture is the for chapter thirty-eight.
7: Thank you, bossom. Craving, anger, and ignorance. Monks, wanderers of other communities may ask you, friends. There are these three things. What three? Craving, craving, or greed. Anger, hatred, and ignorance, delusion the unknowing of true reality. These are the three. What, friends, is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between them? If you are asked this, how would you answer? Monks, if wanderers of other communities should ask you such a question, you should answer them as follows. Craving greed, friends, is slightly blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing but slow to fade away. Anger, hatred is very blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing, but quick to fade away. Ignorance, delusion is very blameworthy, responsible for wrongdoing and slow to fade away. Suppose they ask, but friends, what is the reason unarisen craving arises and arisen craving increases and expands? You should answer, an attractive object. For one who attends carelessly to an attractive object, unarisen craving arises, and arisen craving increases and expands. This, friends, is the reason unarisen craving arises and arisen craving increases and expands. Suppose they ask, but what, friends, is the reason unarisen anger arises and arisen anger increase and expands? You should answer a repulsive object. For one who attends carelessly to a repulsive object, unarisen anger arises and arisen anger increases and expands. This, friends, is the reason unarisen anger arises and arisen anger increases and expands. Suppose, they ask, but what, friends, is the reason unarisen ignorance, unknowing of true reality, arises, and arisen ignorance increases and expands? You should answer, careless attention. For one who attends carelessly, unarisen ignorance arises, and arisen ignorance increases and expands. This, friends, is the reason unarisen ignorance arises and arisen ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, increases and expands. Suppose, they ask, but what, friends, is the reason unarisen craving does not arise and arisen craving is abandoned? You should answer an unattractive object. For one who attends carefully to an unattractive object. Unarisen craving does not arise, and arisen craving is abandoned. This, friends, is the reason unarisen craving does not arise, and arisen craving is abandoned. Suppose they ask, but what, friends, is the reason unarisen anger does not arise? And arisen anger is abandoned. You should answer the liberation of the mind by loving kindness. For one who attends carefully to the liberation of the mind by loving kindness, unarisen anger does not arise, and arisen anger is abandoned. This, friends, is the reason unarisen anger does not arise and arisen anger is abandoned. Suppose they ask, but what friends is the reason? Unarisen ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, does not arise and arisen ignorance is abandoned. You should answer careful attention. For one who attends carefully, unarisen ignorance does not arise and arisen ignorance is abandoned. This, friends, is the reason unarisen ignorance does not arise, and arisen ignorance, unknowing of true reality, is abandoned.
1: Okay, thank you, Nick. So in our group learning program in Chapter 8, we cover craving, anger, and ignorance in the other ways that we refer to this. This is affectionately referred to as the three poisons, the three unwholesome roots, or the three fires, what you're doing as part of this path to enlightenment is you're working to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. This is at a high level what you're working to eliminate. On a detailed level, you're working to eliminate the ten fetters, and all of the individual ten fetters bubble up to craving, anger, and ignorance. But there's teachings at this higher level that help you to understand how to eliminate them kind of more broadly and more generally. But then there's teachings on a detailed level of the individual 10 fetters and how to eradicate each individual fetter. So here, the Buddha is explaining the three unwholesome roots, craving, anger, and ignorance, and kind of what creates them to arise in the mind. And this is where he talks about the unarisen craving arises and increases because of an attractive object. I call this the object of our affection, right? So that shiny object around the corner, the unenlighted mind just thinks, if I get that shiny object, everything will be wonderful. But you get that shiny object, that new pair of shoes, the mind experiences that temporary happiness for a while, and then it wants another pair of shoes, or it wants a new purse, or it wants... A new jewelry or what have you. There's always this longing for something. The mind's always yearning. It has this strong eagerness for the next thing. That's the attractive object. That's the craving that is allowed to arise and increase in the mind. That's what the unenlightened mind does. And then, conversely, the way to eradicate that, I'm going to go back and forth here. The way to eradicate that what the Buddha is saying is the way to eliminate craving is to look at these things as unattractive objects. Now, in the group learning program, I share other aspects of the Buddhist teachings that are being applied to eradicate craving, desire, attachment from the mind. And here, this is just kind of a summarized version that the Buddha is giving. But The way that I teach it is it's breathing mindfulness meditation, the practice of generosity. Those are generalized ways to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But then there's also identifying individual cravings and working to eradicate those. We talk about those in chapters 12 and 13 in the group learning program. But here the Buddha is saying, you know, kind of carefully observe that these objects are unattractive. And the unattractiveness that you're looking to cultivate in the mind is that they're impermanent, right? That previous chapter where he's like, they're so dissatisfying, they're so unreliable, they're so unstable, these conditioned objects, they're unsatisfying. That's what you do that when you see something that's attractive, you're like, oh, wow, a new book, I really would like to get that new book. If it's just a craving to have a book just because it's a book, then Maybe helping to reflect on the impermanence of the book can help you to maybe see it as unattractive and not allowing those pleasant feelings to arise so you can cut it off and let it go. Or the same thing if you've got 50 pairs of shoes and you want one more pair of shoes. What is one more pair of shoes going to do? Look at it as this is just the mind having craving, desire, attachment. This 51st pair of shoes is impermanent. I've already got 50 pairs of shoes. Why do I need one more pair of shoes? So these are some of the things you can reflect on in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. The unarisen anger to arise and increase and expand is a repulsive object. This is an object that the mind wants to push away. It can be an object, it can be a situation, it can be a relationship, a person there's this disagreeable object. With craving, it's an agreeable object. It's a attractive object, one that the mind wants to pull towards it. With a anger, this anger, hatred, ill will, it's this repulsive or this disagreeable object that the mind wants to push away. That's what arises anger in the mind and allows it to increase and expand. The way that you remedy that or transform that is through loving kindness. And this is something that I teach as part of the group learning program as well, that in order to eradicate the anger from the mind, the way to get rid of hatred and ill will is that you practice loving kindness meditation, and then you practice loving kindness in daily life through your moral conduct, through your speech and your actions, as well as your intentions too, you practice this loving kindness or this genuine interest and seeing all beings be well. And that's what transforms this anger and allows the mind to abandon it and gets rid of it. Then there's this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality that can increase and expand in the mind. And the Buddha talks about it as careless attention. One way you can think of that is complacency, right? That's what's going to lead to This unknowing of true reality is that the mind's complacent. It's lackluster. It's lethargic. It's maybe lazy to kind of actively pursue and learn and gain this wisdom through learning the teachings, reflecting on them, and practicing them. And then he says, you know, what's the way to eradicate this ignorance? Well, he says it's through careful attention. Careful attention. This is the determination, the dedication, the diligence to learn and practice the teachings, independently verifying the truth, acquiring wisdom. And when you acquire this wisdom through your careful attention, through your diligence, then you eradicate the ignorance. What is the mind ignorant of? It's ignorant of the natural laws of existence. For example, it's unknowing of true reality that craving, desire, attachment is what causes discontentedness. If the mind never takes the effort to carefully attend to the teachings, learn that it's craving, desire, attachment that's creating and causing discontentedness, then how could it ever eradicate discontentedness from the mind if it doesn't even know what the cause is? So the unenlightened mind is going around blaming other people for their anger, for example, thinking that it's somebody else that's causing them to be angry. That's why they just keep being angry over and over and over again, because they don't understand what the root of the problem is. They don't understand the true cause of the problem is their own craving, desire, attachment. Therefore, this anger is just going to keep going on and on and on and on and on on because the mind is unknowing of true reality. It's ignorant. It's unwise. It's lacking the wisdom To know that the mind is causing itself to be angry. So with this dedication, determination, and diligence, this careful attention to eradicating ignorance, learning the teachings independently, seeing them as truth, gaining this wisdom, now the mind knows what the root cause of this discontentedness is. And when you know what the root cause is, then it's just a matter of applying the training in order to transform the mind from this discontentedness to this content mind. Because discontentedness is impermanent. The unenlightened mind is impermanent. It can move to this enlightened mental state where it's purified and now it won't experience this constant up and down of discontentedness. And it's through eradicating the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or these three fires. These fires are burning. And we need to extinguish the fire of craving, the fire of anger, the fire of ignorance. We need to extinguish that. And as you do, then you arise the wholesome qualities, which are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. That's the three wholesome roots. So we're uprooting the unwholesome roots of craving, anger, and ignorance, and we're transforming that with the three wholesome roots of generosity loving kindness and wisdom which are the exact opposites of these three unwholesome roots what questions do you guys have on this chapter
3: no question for us thank you sir.
1: okay yeah we cover that pretty thoroughly in the group learning program so now we're at chapter 39
3: yes and the next one after is Ali
4: a quality of to share this message mom, a among who is possessed of a quality is fit to share this message what are the eight here in moms, a among is a listener one who engage order to listen one who assess or analyze one who recollect recall remember one who is known no no knower wise, one who is expounder explain, one skill in recognizing accordant and non accordant, one who is not a maker of arguments, who to some high assemble council come, waver not, nor in discourse fell, nor hides the teaching nor speak in doubtfulness and who being questioned is not agitated among like this is fit to share this message
1: okay thank you ali so essentially what the buddha is saying here is you know he's teaching all these people and different people are becoming enlightened but even when people are enlightened they have different personalities and they have different qualities They all have a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, but they have certain personalities and certain things that they're good at in terms of other things. And the Buddha is saying these are the eight qualities for someone who's really fit to go out and share this message and share these teachings with other people. And he gives these eight qualities. One who's a listener, Because a person who's going to share these teachings with students has to be a good listener. You have to listen to your students, understand their life, understand what they're involved in, understand the challenges that they face on a day-to-day basis. One who engages others to listen. A person needs to be able to share the discourses, but also speak in an inspiring way that kind of draws people in and creates interest in having them actually listen and understand the teachings. One who assesses and analyzes. Someone who doesn't just kind of accept what's there, but really looks at things and examines the teachings, assesses them and analyzes them, and really can then maybe put them into their own words in terms of sharing the teachings. One who recollects or recalls and remembers, right? A person who's enlightened is going to have a very good memory to be able to recollect or remember or recall the teachings not only recalling the teachings but an enlightened being is going to have many 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 students who they interact with on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis. And you've gotta not only remember the teachings, but you've gotta be able to remember your student's life and the things that they're involved in because you might have a conversation with a student today and you might not talk to them again for in a private setting for maybe three months or six months. But having a recollection of their life and understanding a bit about their life, you can relate the teachings to their life and help them more if you can recall not only the teachings, but your student's life and the things that they've shared with you, too, in detail. One who is a knower or who is wise, the way that you get wisdom is training in the teachings, independently verifying the truth and acquiring wisdom. Essentially, in order to be a teacher, you have to be a very deep, deep practitioner first before you can be a teacher. You can't just become a teacher in six months or even one year maybe. It takes many years to develop your practice first as a practitioner, and then with that wisdom you're then prepared to be able to share the teachings because you deeply are practicing them so you're a knower or you're wise. One who is an expounder, one who explains the teachings, not just the discourses, not just the actual words that the Buddha shared, but they can expand and explain beyond what the Buddha actually taught so that the students Really deeply understand what the teachings are. During the lifetime of the Buddha, his students remembered his teachings word for word for word, but then in conversations and when questions came up, the teachers needed to be able to expand beyond what the Buddha actually taught. So they would recount and recite the discourses, but then they would explain beyond that. And today, it's the same thing that someone Who would need to be a good teacher would need to be able to explain beyond just the words of the buddha because anybody could pick up this book and read these teachings but what you really need in order to help you as a good teacher is you need someone who can expand and explain beyond just the written words the seventh one is one skilled in recognizing accordance and non-accordance what this is is that if a teacher deeply is practicing the teachings and has this wisdom they should be able to see in their students when their students are practicing the teachings well and when they're not practicing the teachings well. And this goes back to what we talked about earlier, where a teacher will need to sometimes share with their students, hey, I think you could have been a little bit more gentle when you spoke with that waiter, for example. And if a teacher can see that someone is practicing right speech and they can let their students know, like, hey, you did that really well, good job or hey i think you can improve your speech here a little bit then a teacher who sees this and recognizes the accordance and non-accordance with the teachings can then be of more value and more benefit to their students because the teacher can observe their students practice and then give them guidance of like hey you're practicing this really well or you need to improve your practice over here and that would be the seventh quality this eighth quality is one who's not a maker of arguments right so i told you how when the buddha does his list he tends to use the last one as like a real emphasis right right so even if somebody was really good at all these other seven things but they actually are arguing with people how could they actually go out and represent the teachers if they're actually arguing with people a person who's arguing with somebody isn't enlightened an enlightened being doesn't argue with people. They don't have this craving to be right. They don't have this craving to be heard. They're not going to force their way and argue with people. They're going to understand that it's all about being peaceful and calm and speaking respectfully and politely with each other, that arguments don't create anything beneficial whatsoever. So if a person is going to be good at teaching. They can't be someone who creates arguments amongst people. That's not going to lead to beneficial results. It's not going to provide a good example for the students. This last paragraph that the Buddha teaches here, he talks about a teacher who visits high assemblies. This is like people in higher society, like during the lifetime of the Buddha would have been like kings and royal families and very wealthy business people and things like this. And what the Buddha is saying here is that someone who's a really good teacher is someone who's even when they're in the company of people of high society, their mind doesn't waver. They're wavering not, right? Because sometimes for some people who are in the company of someone who's really high in society, if the mind is unenlightened, it's going to shake. It's going to waver, right? But someone who is enlightened, they're not going to feel that way because they're going to look at someone who is the president of a country the same way as they do anyone else or a celebrity or someone who's famous. They're not going to be shaken up and uncalm and unconcentrated when they're around that person because they just see that person just as everyone else. That we're all serving certain roles in society and the president of a country is no more important than a person who collects garbage from people's houses to an enlightened mind these people are all the same they're all exactly the same they're just performing different roles in society the unenlightened mind wants to put these people at different levels high society it may be a low job for example but an enlightened mind sees all these people as exactly the same and their mind's not going to be shaken up in the presence of someone that is higher in society And same thing the Buddha talks about here, you know, doesn't fail in discourses, that when somebody is speaking the discourses, they can be confident in sharing the discourses. They don't hide the teachings. They don't speak with doubtfulness. They're confident in the way that they teach. When someone questions them about their teachings, they're not agitated, right? Some people, when they're sharing teachings, if there's ego or arrogance there and they get a question from a student they might be agitated by that. But someone who's a good teacher, the Buddha saying, they wouldn't be agitated by any questions that are being asked of them. So this is the Buddha kind of encapsulating what makes a good teacher a good teacher. And you can see here the qualities that he's saying that would be very helpful for someone to go out and share these teachings. And I agree that this is absolutely a wonderful summary of the aspects of mind that a really good teacher would need to have in order to be successful in guiding others to enlightenment. What questions do you guys have here?
3: Well, uh, Johnny has a question so let's go him. Thank you for uh, including this in the lesson today. I've not
5: seen this list before and um, I think it's fabulous. Um, the fact I think despite whether or not someone actually wants to aspires to be a teacher, that the list alone lists qualities that are fantastic as aspirational skills to achieve in the practice of Buddhism. And I've not seen it before, thank you for that.
1: Yes, you're welcome, Johnny, I agree. This you know, this Buddha was surely a Buddha. He was fully awake, perfectly enlightened one. This is two thousand five hundred years ago he's sharing this level of wisdom and content you know they didn't even have public school systems back then and he was sharing wisdom far beyond what anyone else during his lifetime was able to explain and even today you see his teachings are just as applicable today as they were 2500 years ago and you know that's a good point that you bring up that these are great skills for anybody to acquire you know to be a good business person to be a good marketing, to be a good salesperson, to be a good volunteer in a charity, to be a good teacher at a primary school or a middle school or a high school or a college professor. These are all really good qualities that we can cultivate as part of our practice. So that's a very good point too, Johnny. Thank you for sharing that. Any other questions on this chapter?
3: No more questions.
1: Okay. We just have one more chapter to finish out for today. And this is one that's actually in volume one that we cover in the group learning program as part of the the AFO path, but let's go ahead and cover it here as well.
3: Well, I will not speak a falsehood even as a joke. Even so unwise and empty Rahula is a really close ship life practice of those who are not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie. So too, Rahula. When one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. Therefore, Rahula, you should train us. I will not speak a falsehood, even as a joke.
1: Okay, thank you, Bassem. So this connects to right speech. If you remember the five factors of well-spoken speech, the Buddha speaks there about what is right speech. And then as we've studied in this program, he expands it in other ways. But those five factors are speaking at the right time, what you say is true, speak gently, speak beneficially with a mind of loving kindness and without blame. Well, here in terms of speaking things that are true, he's speaking to his son Rahula. He's saying, even when I tell a joke, I don't lie is what he's saying. You say, I don't even lie when I tell a joke. Because if you can imagine this enlightened being who's sharing the truth, he's sharing the truth with people and helping them understand this path to enlightenment. And his words have a lot of meaning behind them. And people are not believing his teachings, but they're learning and practicing to discover the truth and acquire this wisdom. Well, if he was telling jokes and kind of lying in his jokes, well, when he's teaching, the population of people around him, they wouldn't know, like, is he telling the truth or is that a joke? Like their mind would kind of waver. They wouldn't be quite sure. Is he telling the truth or is he not telling the truth? Is it a joke or is it not a joke? But by not telling a lie, even as a joke, then more and more people in your family, in your community, in your professional life, get used to every single time you open your mouth, you tell the truth. And this can be really beneficial to establish what I've talked about in other classes as Barami, the one who people listen to. And in fact, to tell a joke that is truthful, it requires some wisdom. It's a real challenge. And if you can pull off telling jokes that are truthful, that aren't lies, you'll actually develop your mind even more because you have to have a lot of wisdom to be able to do that. And further, what the Buddha shares in here, I think, which is really enlightening and helping you with choosing life partners, with guiding your children, with choosing friends, with choosing co-workers, if you're a boss and you're hiring employees, this one sentence where he says, so too, Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say that one would not do right so if you're around people who are telling lies the buddha saying there's no evil that they wouldn't do if they're willing to tell a deliberate lie then they're willing to do a whole lot of other evil things too so therefore knowing that telling lies is going to be harmful to their life and if you associate with people That are telling lies, your choice to be associated with an employee and hiring an employee in your company that tells lies, that's going to destroy your company. Or if you have a life partner and you choose to have a life partner and that person is telling lies, or if your children go out in the world and tell lies, people aren't going to be able to trust them. And it's going to be very hard for them to make wise decisions and lead a good life. So when you choose for people to be around you, you should look for people that are always telling the truth. And if you're in a teaching role with children or things like this, then you should make sure that they're always telling the truth. And for your own practice, to get to this enlightened mental state, you should always, always, always tell the truth. And this makes the mind be at ease. Because by the time you get to enlightenment, the mind is practicing these teachings effortlessly. The mind is at ease, it's very peaceful. One of the reasons why it's peaceful is because you're always telling the truth. You don't have to worry, you don't have to wreck your mind trying to figure out what did I say to Bossom and what did I say to Nick? I said something different, I lied to Bossom, I told the truth to Nick, so let me make sure I tell the right lie to Bossom again this can really weigh on the mind. It's a huge burden to do this in the mind. Whereas if you're always telling the truth and you're just always speaking the truth to everybody, even as a joke, then you never have to worry. You never have to worry whatsoever about what you said to one person or another because you just always speak the truth. So be sure that as you're developing your practice of right speech, even when you tell jokes, make sure that they're the truth. You'll develop this bother me, the one who people listen to, and it will put your mind at ease that you will always be able to be at ease and the mind will be peaceful because you never have to contemplate and worry of whether you're telling lies or not and who to speak what to who and to when and all these things and who might be listening to my conversation and so forth and so on. What questions do you guys have on this chapter?
3: Not seeing it, it for
1: picture. Okay, so that's the last chapter for today, chapter 40. In our next class, we're going to be going forward in this book to chapters 41 through chapters 50. So if you're joining our class for the first time, download the book, print it out, or get a printed copy from Amazon. Read chapters 41 through 50, and those are the ones we're going to discuss next week, and you can bring questions to class. If you've been in this program for a while, then you probably already have a version of this book and you can just focus on the reading of those 10 chapters and just drip the knowledge into the mind. And remember, as you're reading, you're not believing what the Buddha is teaching. You're not believing what I'm teaching. Instead, you're learning, you're reflecting, and you're practicing to see the truth more and more for yourself and then incorporating these teachings into your life and applying them in ways that are beneficial for your life practice moving the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. So thank you all for joining. I appreciate all your hard work and effort, your diligence, your determination to continually learn and practice. Remember to continue to read, but also remember your meditation practice and attending to that and being sure that you're really diligent and practicing your meditation every day. So we'll see you either... On Sunday, which is tomorrow, where we're going to be in chapter one in the group learning program, the universal teachings, which is love, no harm, and good morals. Or Wednesday, where we're going to be studying loving kindness meditation. That's going to be the first class of a four-part series. We're going to be studying loving kindness meditation. Or perhaps next Saturday, where we'll be in chapters 41 through 50. And maybe I'll see you all three of those days. So in the meantime, have a lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Sawadiha.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.